and hopefully, hope turn to Matthew chapter 27. We are at our next to last teaching in the book. Matthew chapter 27. Next week we will finish out the book with the Great Commission, which is 28, 16, and 20. And today we will pick up at chapter 27 and verse 55. Now the last time we met, we saw how people reacted to Jesus' crucifixion. The passers-by, as Jesus was being crucified, hurled insults toward Jesus, cursed Jesus. We saw that the religious leaders did the same thing. We saw that the thieves on each side of Jesus, who were also being crucified, insulted and blasphemed God's name. And then we were introduced to a fourth group, which was a centurion and the guards who were protecting that area. And as these supernatural events took place, uh, an earthquake and the whole region going into a state of darkness, they turn these Gentiles who have no stake in this game at all with this Jewish Messiah, turn and look up and say truly as Jesus takes his last breath this was the Son of God this was the Messiah King and they recognize him as such. Which is important for Matthew's audience who is reading this 50 years later located in the north in a region, a mixed region of Jews and Gentiles. And so here we have these Gentiles proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah. Now we come to another group, a fifth group, in verse 55. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, that would be from Galilee in the north down to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, they came with him ministering to him were looking meaning at the crucifixion from afar these are Jesus female followers who travel with him uh, to the Passover probably with expectations that he's going to come out publicly and announce that he's the Messiah and overthrow the Roman government they have to be disappointed when he is arrested and crucified, and they watch, it says, from afar. And we notice how they're identified. It's very interesting. It says in verse 55, number one, there were many women. That means there's more than a few. There's a lot of women. It says that they followed him. That means they traveled with him. They were his companions, along with the twelve apostles and others. And then it says, in verse 55, they ministered to him. They were devoted to his welfare. We don't know how they ministered. It doesn't say. Did they, were these the people who cooked food along the way? Did they stitch garments? Did they pray for him? How, how did they minister? The, the Bible doesn't say. And then it says they, they looked upon him. They watched the crucifixion. By the way, where are his male disciples at the crucifixion? Oh, they're gone. But these watch and look upon the crucifixion. And then they are named in verse 56. Among the many were, number one, Mary Magdalene, that's the woman who had seven demons uh, that Jesus 
exercised and set free. Second of all, there's Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. This is James the Less. There were two James among Jesus' twelve apostles. This is little Jimmy. That's what the Less means. Short Jimmy. Younger Jimmy. So they had a big Jim and a little Jim. And this is little Jim's mother. It looks like the family actually travels to Jerusalem with Jesus. At least the mother does. And then the mother of Zebedee's sons. That's the mother of the other James and John, the sons of thunder. John being part of Jesus' inner circle. So here are three of the women who are named. These are God's gals, in a sense, and they, they travel with Jesus. So that's the crucifixion. Now we come to the burial. And at the burial, we immediately meet another person. Look in verse 57. Now when evening had come, there was a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, this is Joseph of Arimathea, who himself had become a disciple of Jesus. Arimathea is about 22 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And it says that this man is rich. He's one of the few who's able to squeeze through the eye of the needle. Remember, Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to get saved. It's easier for a camel to do what? Squeeze through the eye of the needle. This is the one of them who got through the eye of the needle. And you know, we have a lot of rich people in Dallas who have come to Christ. Let me tell you, that is rare. It's, we're living in a rare area. Where I'm back, where I come from, back on the East Coast, if you're rich, you don't have anything to do with Jesus. And so here's a man who is rich, and it says he had become a disciple of Jesus. Now we know from another gospel, it says he's a secret disciple. Mark's gospel tells us that uh, Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the Sanhedrin. Luke tells us when the Sanhedrin met at the trial of Jesus, Joseph of Arimathea voted against crucifying Jesus. And there was something about Jesus that grabbed his attention. He's become a disciple of Jesus. Still a secret disciple. And then look what he does in verse 58. This man went to Pilate. Now that tells us something. It tells us he was a man of influence. You don't get an audience with the governor. I don't, I don't call up the governor and say, hey, I'd like to meet with you tomorrow for lunch. Right? This man can actually get an appointment with the governor. It shows he has power in verse 58. And notice what he does. He does two things. First, he petitions for the body of Jesus. He asks for the body of Jesus. Now, that is a bold request. Because he has now aligned himself with an enemy of the state who's just been crucified. That's bold. He's come out of the closet, hasn't he? He's sided with Jesus. Now, by the way, how bold is it? You see any of Jesus' disciples coming and asking for his body? We know from an earlier passage that when John the Baptist was killed by Herod, his disciples came and said, can we bury his body? That took some guts. Where's Jesus' apostles? You see them wanting to bury his body? 
They're hiding somewhere. They're cowards. But Joseph, this wealthy man with influence, comes out of the closet, proclaims himself to be a disciple, and he requests the body of Jesus. That's a bold request. I think it's a merciful request, too, because if he doesn't take Jesus' body and bury him, Jesus' body will be left for the vultures. And that's usually what happened to bodies. They were left for the vultures, and then they were just thrown on the ground, and the dogs came and finished them off. And so this is a merciful request. And so then, verse 58 says, Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, verse 59, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. So we have, he petitioned for the body of Jesus, and now he prepares the body of Jesus for burial. And he puts this cloth over Jesus, which from a rich man would mean that it would be a very uh, expensive type of shroud. And he takes great care in, in, in preparing Jesus' body. In verse 60 he says, And he laid him in a new tomb, which he had hewn out of a rock. And uh, he rolled a large stone. Now he didn't do this all on his own. He had somebody helping him, obviously, servants. He rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb. And he departed. He buries Jesus in a brand new, just purchased tomb, first class. Uh, notice the difference between the way Judas is buried and Jesus is buried. Judas, Judas is buried in a potter's field. He has a poor person's burial. Jesus is buried in the mausoleum at Sparkman Hillcrest. That's the difference between the burial. And this guy takes care of Jesus' body and he buries him in the best of circumstances. This is a man who is now sided with the cause of Christ. <coughs> then in verse 61, we're introduced to the woman, women again. Look what it says. And Mary Magdalene was there, meaning at the tomb. And the other Mary, Mary of little Jimmy, mother of little Jimmy, sitting opposite the tomb. So now we see something. They not only witnessed Jesus' crucifixion, they witnessed Jesus' burial. And when Joseph of Arimathea leaves, they remain. And they just sit there. Because they have followed Jesus for months on end and possibly years on end. So they just sit there. Because it says... At the end of verse 60, that Joseph of Arimathea departed. Do you see that? He departed. <coughs> These women, they sit. They just continue sitting there in verse 61. Now, very interestingly, we have another request of Pontius Pilate. Look in verse 62. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together to Pilate. Now these are Joseph of Arimathea's colleagues. But they are on the opposite side of the fence now. Okay? And look what they do. They said, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver had said, after three days, I will rise. 
Therefore, and now they make a request of Pilate, just as Joseph had made a request. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure unto the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, oh, he's rose, he's risen from the dead. So that the last deception will be worse than the first. Let's make sure that we secure this tomb because one thing we don't want is for his disciples to come and take his body late at night and then they'll say he's risen. And this cult of Jesus will just keep growing based on the myth of the resurrection. So we're asking that you grant a guard be put at that tomb. So Pilate says in verse 65, you have a guard. Now that could mean you got your own guards, temple guards, or it could be your request is granted. You know, you, okay, you've got the guard. Go your way, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Now, when we talk about sealing the tomb, what you need to be thinking of is a crime scene. How do the police secure and seal off a crime scene today? They put that yellow tape around the parameter of the crime scene, and then they station guards around there so that that crime scene cannot be penetrated. Uh, that's what they've done here. They have secured this scene, and they're going to make sure that the apostles cannot penetrate that barrier and get to the body of Jesus. They really think that this could happen. They don't believe in any resurrection. They believe that these apostles could come and steal the bodies. Believe me, they don't know the apostles. <laughs> the apostles weren't concerned enough to bury his body. They're not going to touch his dead body. I can guarantee you that. And end up getting arrested. So there we have the burial of Jesus. Now we come to the resurrection. Now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, probably about six in the morning, Mary Magdalene and the mother and the other Mary came to the tomb. And this would be three days after Jesus has died. So they've left, they've gone home, they've gone to bed, all these things, and now they come to the tomb. So this is the third time these women are mentioned. And they come for the purpose of, the Sabbath is now passed, they come for the purpose of anointing Jesus' body. That was a process that the Jews did. And they're coming there figuring, well, how in the world are we ever going to roll that stone away? Because they were there when he was buried. They know what hell Joseph's team put that stone in for. They're thinking, how in the world are we ever going to do that? They don't know the guards are here. They don't know that the Sanhedrin has gone and asked Pilate to put guards around that perimeter. When they get there, they're probably surprised. You know, they walk there, and then there's these barriers up, and they want to wrap this body in spices, which would be similar to embalming today. Not quite, but you got the idea. And they're just trying to figure out a way how to probably move that stone. And then look what it says in verse 2. And behold, look, suddenly... There was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door. And he sat on it. 
I don't know how you sit on a round stone. If the stone is still sitting up on its edge and it's round, he, it means he'd have to be sitting on the arc of that stone. Or did he knock the stone over and he's sitting on it while it's sitting flat? We don't know that. That's just something the scripture doesn't tell us. But we know he knocked the rolled the stone away, and he sat on it. And it says, his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And that's our Christmas part of it. That's why I have to have saved this for Christmas time, a little bit of snow there. His uh, clothing was as white as snow. And the guards, these are the guards who were standing there, protecting the two. The guards shook for fear of him, of the angel, and they became like dead men. They fainted right on the spot. And they're out of the picture now. And they're just lying there. And here the women come up. And this is what they see. And <laughs> it's really interesting because it says, uh, in verse 5 it says, The angel answered and said to the women, Do not be afraid. Uh, you know, that would almost be laughable. That kind of that kind of statement, because obviously these guards who were armed, guess what? They were afraid and they fainted, fainted, and now they're going to tell these women not to be afraid. <laughs> now, don't be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. He has been raised from the dead. Is what it says literally. And so now they receive this news that Jesus is raised. And then the angels give them two commandments. Commandment number one in verse 6. Come, see the place where the Lord led. Come, look inside. We don't know whether they did or not. But I'm assuming that they obeyed the command. And they went and looked inside, and it was empty. And they go, and they know that he's raised because the angel just said he's been raised as he had predicted, as he said he would be raised. So they look inside and it's empty. Now commandment number two. Go! Notice commandment number six. In verse six. Come! Look at commandment number two in verse seven. Go! You see that? Come! See! Go! Tell! Come! See, verse 7, go, tell. How should they go? Quickly, tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And, indeed, he is going before you, tell the disciples he's going before you in the Galilee, about 80 miles north, there you will see him. Behold, I have told you. Now, what we have here is that they must now go and tell the disciples that Jesus was going to go into Galilee just like he had told them before. Now, do you know any other time when Jesus told his disciples that he would be raised from the dead and he would go into Galilee? He did. He told them that at the Last Supper. And when you're reading the Last Supper, you sort of just catch right over. But in light of this, we'll discover that he told it at the Last Supper that he was going to be raised and go into Galilee. Now, if you look back at the Last Supper, which is chapter 26, and you know the whole story, 
In verse 31, he predicts Peter's denial. It's where Peter says, you know, I'll, I'm gonna die, I'll die for you. He institutes the Lord's Supper in verses 26 through 30. This is Matthew 26, 26 through 30. He has the Lord's Supper, this is my body, and so forth. And then beginning in verse 31 begins this whole process of Peter's denial. Look what Jesus says in verse 32. Look at verse 31. Then Jesus said, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. And we saw how that was fulfilled. They all ran. They all denied him. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. It's exactly what they did. But look at verse 32. But after I have been raised, I will go before you where? to Galilee. Now, when you go back to chapter 28, and you look at verse 7, the angel commands, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and indeed he's going before you in the Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I told you. So what we have is, we have this prediction that Jesus is going to be going into Galilee. Uh, when the women arrive and they tell the apostles that Jesus is going into Galilee, this will revive their memories. And they'll remember what Jesus said. Oh, that's what he said at the Lord last supper. And that he's going into Galilee is very important for Matthew's audience who lives up north in the area of Galilee and beyond. So it means that Jesus is a Messiah for people in Galilee. And Matthew's audience, you have to realize what's going on 50 years after these events, and they're having all kinds of problems with their relatives. These Jews who are following Jesus, and they're in churches that are made of Jews and Gentiles together, and their relatives are saying, don't have anything to do with this Jesus. You know, these Gentiles. Uh, you know, you're Galileans, and you're... Jesus says he's going to go into Galilee. Jesus is for the Galileans. So this is going to give those people some hope. They're going to stick it out. They're not going to abandon Jesus. This is where, where he goes after he's raised. Where does he go after he's raised? Galilee! Where would you want to live? Galilee! That's a Jesus place. So you can see how that would be effective. Look at verse 8. So they went quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy. Mixed emotions there. You see that? Fear and joy. Hey, wait a second. I thought the angel told you not to fear. I know that's what I want. Still scared. But. but fear and great joy. They ran to bring the disciples the word. And, verse 9, as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them. saying, Rejoice. Now, if you think they were afraid before, when they saw an angel, what do you think they feel now, when suddenly they're running fast as they can, and there's this guy walking down the road, and he's going like this. Hey, wait a second. And they run up to him, and they go, It's Jesus. And he says, Rejoice. It was scary to me. And... Then look what he says. How do I know that they're afraid? Well, look, it says in verse 10, he said, don't be afraid. You see that? So I know they were afraid. But look at verse 9. He says, rejoice. And so they came and they held him by the feet and worshipped him. Now, 
This entire passage that we're looking at today is just filled with so much information. Uh, just think of these women, just for, for a second. They witnessed the crucifixion. Where are the apostles? They witnessed the burial of Jesus. These women witnessed the burial of Jesus. They go to prepare his body with spices and to wrap his body in these spices. The third thing they did. Fourth, they see the resurrected Jesus. Okay? Fifth, they hear the resurrected Jesus. Rejoice, he says to them. Sixth, they touch the resurrected Jesus. Hear, see, touch. Right there's three sentences. I'm sure they could smell him if he had a scent. Look at this. Seventh, they worship the resurrected Jesus, it says in verse 9. Eighth, they are the first to preach the resurrection of Jesus. And then finally, they are the first post-resurrection believers. In a culture that relegated women to the margins and treated them as second-class citizens, the Jesus movement was absolutely different. It was a totally egalitarian movement where women were considered equals, not on the margins, and actually had places of prominence in the early church. In Christ, the Apostle Paul said, there's no male or female. No Jew or Gentile, no advantage between Jewish. No slave or free. All one in Christ. And so verse 10, Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. And then he reiterates this. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So they go on their way. <clears throat> now we have another meeting takes place. Look verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came into the city. These were the guys that were protecting that parameter around the tomb. And they wake up. They look. There's no body there. <laughs> They're scared to death. They go into the city. They reported to the chief priest all the things that have happened. There was an earthquake. There was lightning. There was an angel. There was, you know, and when they had assembled with the elders, they, in other words, they called a very quick session of the Grand Sanhedrin. And all the Sanhedrin would have been in Jerusalem at that time to celebrate the Passover feast. So all 72 of them would have been there. I don't think Joseph of Arimathea showed up at this meeting. And so they had this meeting, and they consulted together in verse 12, and they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. saying, tell, his, tell them, in other words, tell the people and the authorities, like Pontius Pilate, tell them his disciples came by night and stole him away while we slept. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will appease him and make you secure. In other words, leave Pilate to us. We've got your back. Just stick to the story. You dozed off, and while you dozed off, 
His disciples came in and stole the body. Now, very interesting. Who's the deceiver now? Remember what the what the uh, the Sanhedrin said to Pilate when they requested a guard be put around the tomb. They said, uh, "What did they say back there?" In verse sixty-three, sir, we remember while he was still alive. Now that deceiver. Now who's the deceiver? That deceiver said I would he would rise from the dead. Guess what? He did rise from the dead. He wasn't a deceiver. He was a truth teller. Who's the deceiver? The Sanhedrin are the deceivers. They have plotted this scheme. They've had this scheme and they're paying off the guards to say that his disciples came and stole the body. So verse 15 says, So they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And I love this next part. This is Matthew's commentary. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews in AD AD. All the way up into the time I'm writing this. This is the story that all the Jews are sticking to. And you see, for Matthew's audience, this is really an important statement. Because Matthew's Jewish believers up north, you know, in a church with other Gentiles, are hearing it from their relatives. Why are you following this guy? This guy, Jesus. He's dead. That's the story that's still being told. He's dead. You're following a false Messiah. You've been deceived by these people. And that's the story that's still being told, Matthew says. And guess what? It's still being told today. If you go to the Jewish community center out in North Dallas, and you talk about the resurrection of Jesus, guess what they'll say? It's ridiculous. He's what? He's dead. That's the story that's still being told. It's, it's had a life of its own, that deception. It has gone on and on and on. When I was in seminary, there was a, a book out. It was called The Passover Plot by a guy named Hugh Scunfield. And the whole thesis of the book was that Jesus' disciples stole his body. And it you know, sold a million copies. And uh, that was back, you know, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, now, why are they coming up with that story? Why would you come up with a story that Jesus' disciples stole his body? Because if God raised him from the dead, that means you oppose God. <laughs> that Jesus was right and you were wrong and you were on the wrong side of history. You got it wrong and you were opposing God. And you'd have to admit that you made a mistake. And that would just... It's impossible with the pride these people have. If Jesus was raised from the dead and you admitted it, that would mean you'd have to believe that Jesus is your king and you would submit to King Jesus. And you lose all your power. And they weren't about to lose their power and position. So they would rather, you know, perpetrate a lie than tell the truth. And if Jesus was raised from the dead, it would mean their lives would change. It means they would have to give their allegiance to Jesus and they would no longer 
be in control of their own lives. And so this is the lie that's perpetrated. And uh, rather than reorient their lives toward the kingdom of God and King Jesus, they chose to oppose God and perpetrate the lie. And it's the greatest cover-up in human history. You think Watergate was a cover-up? This is the greatest cover-up in human history. And the problem with cover-ups is they can't go on forever. They're always discovered, aren't they? So, Watergate, the cover-up lasted a little bit, but it was finally discovered and the truth came out. And guess what? They thought they could cover this up, but it didn't stop the Jesus movement. Because people discovered the truth, that Jesus was alive, and they had encounters with Christ, and they pledged their allegiance. And that's what this book is meant to do for the readers. It's meant to give us assurance that Jesus is alive. He is who he said he was. He is the king of the universe, the Messiah king. And we owe him our allegiance. And as a result of that, we have a great commission. And that great commission is found in verses 16 through 20. And that's what we'll cover next week. Amen? Lord, we thank you for uh, this passage. We thank you for a Savior who kept his word. We thank you for a Savior that changed the course of history and changed our lives. We thank you, Lord, that those of us who are on the rich side of the scale of economics, and that's about every one of us in this country, we've been able to squeeze through that eye of the needle because you revealed your truth to us. We've accepted it, and by faith we've trusted you as our Lord and Savior. Oh, Lord, now help us to fulfill this great commission that we're going to hear about next week. Tell others about Jesus Christ and expose the cover-up that the truth can be revealed. In his name we pray. Amen.